students learning talk about the sphere of the sun part two today but first we're going to start off with a quick review so let's make sure we know what it is we need to know first off remember that this is the fourth sphere of heaven there's also the very first sphere of heaven that is not obscured by the conical shadow of the earth which means it is not marred by any sin so if on a quiz i say which sin mars the theologians in the sun you will write none of them None of them. That's a trick question. Very good. And so who are the sorts of people that we see in the sun? As I said, theologians, people who study God. Theos means God. Logos means study of. Teachers, those who are illuminating, as well as those who are scholars, those who let the light of truth through themselves. At least that's the idea. That's the idea. As a teacher, I don't tell you personal information about myself as my profession. I tell you objective information about the world so that you can use it to make your own free choices. And that is the idea behind a democratic education, which is why you receive it for free, which is uh, uh, one of the greatest ideas we've ever come up with. And so the theme here will be sharing perspective in order to gain a greater one. The liberal art related to this, as we said yesterday, is arithmetic. Arithmetic makes sense because it is the art of wadding things together, adding things together. Just like when you converse and discuss with somebody, you add your perspectives together. Very oddly, and this is an old medieval Arabic sort of riddle slash question, if I have a piece of information and I share with you a piece of information, do you now have a new piece of information? Yes, answer is obviously yes, but have I lost that piece of information by giving it to you like I would a physical good? No, we now what that piece of information together. Share. We share it together, and that seems to be at least the fundamental idea behind why we share stories. And perhaps you might think of a story even more elementally than a word as the as the fundamental. Um, the fundamental vessel by which we convey meaning or information to each other. So a question you might well ask is the grammarian say that the word is the fundamental part of language. I would say perhaps that's right, but perhaps it's the story. Perhaps words are more like the fingers on the hand, which is the body, part of the body, which is the story itself. Very interesting, because how do you first learn information and things about the world when you're young? Through very simple what's stories, right? There was a princess. She was in a tower. It was guarded by a dragon. And there was a knight. And he went on a long journey. What does he do? He slays the dragon and saves the who? And where do they ride off to? The sunset. And that's just a very simplistic version of a story that is supposed to tell you something about how the world works. It's very interesting. And so, these Teachers, these theologians, seem to be able to do that, and uh, some are more ideal than others. In any case, here are the two theologians we talked about. Thomas Aquinas, he was the first one. Remember, he was a Dominican, but he talks about not St. Dominique, St. Francis. Remember that St. Francis married poverty. Poverty is not a woman. Poverty is a concept. It means he took a vow of poverty. What do we know about the Franciscans now? Have they held to their ideals, or are they corrupt, just like the Catholic Church and the Florentines, according to Dante? Corrupt or not corrupt? If this were a video game, what would you always be saying? Or if this were a game show, which word would you always be saying? Non-corrupt or corrupt whenever I ask that question? Corrupt, of course. Very good. Second person, St. Bonaventure. Recall, he was a Franciscan monk, but he talks about St. Dominic. St. Dominic did something very weird when he was a baby inside of his mother. He made her have what? Who can recall this? Yes, premonitions. What is a premonition? Yes. Yes, it's a preview. Moneo from Latin means to warn, and pre means to pre-warn. So it is like a pre, 
what do we call those things that we watch before the movie that are often better than the movies themselves? Preview. Preview. And you do know that the people that generate trailers are different from the people who generate the movies, right? That's why the trailers are often better. They know how to do that. And you all know those big, resounding pieces of music that pump you up. Maybe I'll have one of those every day before I lecture. All right, in any case, we talked about the lives of these poor men and whether what we learn from, from them is more their words and their thoughts and their arguments or their actions. And the idea we seem to have from Dante, which is why he includes the life of these individuals, is that you learn more from a person from their opinions and what they say or from what they do and how they conduct themselves. How they conduct themselves. Because that's actually real. I can think all sorts of things. I can have opinions about those sorts of things. Do those affect what the things actually are? No. No, it's a very weak effect, if any. I might affect your opinion to some extent. That is not what I'm attempting to do as a teacher. I'm not a cultural critic. I'm a conveyor of truth, insofar as I'm a good teacher. As far as I'm a bad one, I'm not a conveyor of truth. All right, good. Now, let's get to the arguments. What was promised today? So, and if you wanted to follow along and you want to check up on my reasoning here, which I highly recommend you to do because I'm very much fallible, check Cantos 13, or Canto 13, lines 52 through 87. So, 37 to 48 specifically, Aquinas makes a claim. What is his claim? That human nature has never been so perfect as it was in Solomon. Now, this is very weird. Solomon is an Old Testament figure, sort of a judge, sort of a king. He is known to have been very wise. That's the old idea behind him, the wisdom of Solomon. And yet, since he was king, or rather, this is how I should ask this. If Aquinas says that there was never a man so perfect as Solomon, well, we do know that there were two other men who were supposed to have been made perfect, according to Christian theology. Who was the very first man? Who recalls his name? Yes? Adam. Adam. The idea was he was perfect until he marred himself with sin. There was another man who was made perfect and was supposed to make for the forgiveness of that sin. Yes? Christ. Christ. And so... Dante thinks he's found Aquinas in a bit of a logical contradiction. Because if no man has ever been made as perfect as Solomon, who is not as perfect as Solomon? Which two men that we just mentioned? <laughs> yeah, Adam and Christ. And so Dante's being very clever here. I would say he's like an excellent student. He's like, hmm, you said no man better ever. Well, there are these two men that by definition are supposed to be the best men ever to have been created. So how can't they be better than this guy? Pretty good question, right? It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Well, I want you to write this exactly as it is written here. This looks like how it's supposed to look. I've structured this argument in an outline format just so that you can follow it and see what follows from what next. And you can check up on my reasoning. If I've made an error here, you will be able to see it. And so here's his argument. Lines 52 to 78 in Canto 13 of the Paradiso. All natures come from God. This is a reiteration. We know uh, Dante's ideas on these. We know how people get their roles and their destinies in life by having their souls come down through one of the nine spheres and having those spheres imprint themselves on a person so that that person forever, like a fire trying to go into the air, strives towards their destiny or to get back to the sphere from which their, or through which their soul passed. So all natures come from God, according to Dante. All natures, therefore, come from one place and then through the nine heavens. He uses very prosaic uh, 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 language here, that diversity comes from a unity 
and that uh, the colors come from that which produces color, which is light, or that which allows for color, which is light. Depending on which heaven one's soul passes through, that determines one's type of destiny. Mars, you become warlike. Jupiter, you become ruler-like. Saturn, you become contemplative-like. Moon, you become faithful-like, but not too faithful. Um, <laughs> that sort of thing. And so, one's body and one's soul, remember for Dante, there are two parts to a human. There's the form and the matter following Aristotle. Your form is your soul. That's what makes you look and act in the way that you do. And the matter is your body, the thing that is impressed upon, the wax that receives the signet ring seal. Very interesting idea. And so the process of imprinting the body, or excuse me, the process of imprinting the soul on the body, like pressing the signet ring into the wax, can be done imperfectly. As you all know, if you've ever tried to trace something, it doesn't have to go perfectly well. And so this is why Dante says imperfections exist in the world. One of the reasons. Of course, one of the other reasons is the defectivity of the will. It's, you can make wrong choices. But another reason is that even if your soul or form is perfect because it comes from God, that doesn't mean that it is perfectly impressed onto your body because of the these so-called imperfections of the artist. And so the question here would be, who is the artist? Is it God? Or is it your parents? And so the question therefore becomes this. If it's God, how could a perfect being imperfectly imprint something which is perfect, a soul, onto a body? Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. That logically would not work. What would work, however, is if an imperfect being were involved in this imprinting, an imperfect artist, an artist who, uh, according to Dante, has a shaking hand, as it were. Well, that artist with shaking hand would probably be, in this case, since it can't be God, our parents. That it is the process of imprinting by imperfect beings something which is perfect onto a substance which is corruptible, which makes for human imperfections. Because there, there is a mediator between uh, Dante's God, who gives a perfect soul, or shoots it down through the heavens into um, the world, into a body, but the mediator is the imperfect, the imperfect human hybrid soul slash body combination which is uh, either your mother or your two parents and that seems to be the idea that things get sort of sticky down in the world imperfections multiply very weird interesting all right but not man but god directly created the fusion between matter and form for adam and christ and as the perfect maker they were made perfect beings so there's the big difference between Christ and Adam, especially if I ask you this on a quiz, make sure that you note this final bit. Why are normal humans imperfect? Well, because they have normal human parents who are also imperfect, and those imperfections seem to spread. The imprinting process of soul onto body, because it is done within a human, is not done perfectly, according to Dante, which I think is a fantastic idea for given how little he knew about the physical body. They didn't have the same sort of medical science at his time that we do now. In fact, a dissection of human bodies was considered 
uh, was considered irreligious. It was not allowed. And so we know much, much more about the human body than he did. But he claims, A, that Adam and Christ were perfect, thus contradicting himself on the idea that Solomon was perfect or more perfect than they were, because you cannot be more perfect than uh, someone, at least on earth. Dante does say you can be more perfect in heaven. Um, but that it is precisely because they were not made by two humans, but by God, which made them perfect. So the only way to have a perfect human would to be not be made like a human. <laughs> so will that apply to any of us? Oh, well, then I guess it's sort of okay that we're imperfect in Dante's world. So, let's see what the response is with argument number two, though. Lines 88 to 90. Aquinas backs off his original point. He says, oh, 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 oh. I wasn't trying to say that Solomon's created nature was more perfect than Christ and Adam as a human. My claim was that he was a perfect king. And so he's saying that he played his role perfectly rather than having a perfect substance, even more perfect than uh, embodied God, Christ, or Adam. Well, that makes sense. And that also does strike me as him backing off his point, which also makes me think, or excuse me, illuminates for us that apparently even in heaven you can admit of some correction. And so... This is the reasoning. One, Solomon chose, and this is part of his perfection and part of how one plays one's role correctly. Choice is part of it. Even though one has a destiny, one has to choose how well one plays one's role. He chose to rule practically rather than speculatively. Recall that this is precisely uh, what the second sphere is about. The two ways of living, just as there are, there's a form to one's being and matter, or soul and body, a dual sort of being, well, there are two ways of life one can live, according to Aristotle, Aquinas, and Dante. You can live in your head, speculatively, trying to figure out all things, or you can live in the world, trying to make a difference. And what does a king do? Well, a king is a person that makes the ultimate difference, because they bring the design of a kingdom, or they bring a mental design into the world and impose and protect that order, depending on whether they're a tyrant or a king, the imposition or the, uh, the establishing that which has been agreed upon. And so, speculative questions. Solomon as king had no time for. He didn't have time to sit around and simply be a wise man and read books. He had to run a kingdom. Well, the question might well be this. What is a greater mark of wisdom? The ability to manage a kingdom, that means a full-scale society, hierarchically arranged, or to read a book and write a tome. You might want to think about that, because managing systems is, so far as we know, the most difficult thing possible, except for potentially producing systems that are good. Hmm. And, of course, the ultimate ideal for humans, which we're always striving for, is to create a system that is not subject to entropy. And so that's very interesting. Entropy means the capacity for any physical system to degenerate. And so our ultimate ideal would be essentially to create, well, what would, that, what would be a place that would be the ultimate fair system that would never degenerate? That would be our idea of where? Heaven. That's exactly right. That would be our idea of heaven. Which is so weird because the third argument Dante makes, which we are not going to get into, but we will talk about 
in seminar is, why would a soul in heaven ever want to be resurrected? And I'll get to that in a second after I finish this argument. So here are some speculative questions that Solomon had no time for. This doesn't mean that they are not valuable, but it means if you're a practical person who has things to do, do you need to be wasting your time thinking about how many stars there are? But if you happen to be a wise counselor of the king, a teacher, a philosopher, do you have time to think about how many stars there are in the heavens? Yes, you're very useful. If you're Mr. Schmidt, if you're me, and you're thinking about stars in the heavens, why is that useful? Because what do I do for a job? I teach. Yes, exactly. I teach you how to investigate what is real. And so what do I have to be capable of doing myself so that I can model it so that you can do it by imitation? Investigate what's real. That's exactly right. And so I investigate everything because what I teach you how to do is what? Regardless of what I investigate specifically. What is the action I teach you to do? It's the one we just mentioned. Investigate. investigate. That's right. So it doesn't matter exactly what I investigate because I'm teaching you how to find the truth you're looking for, whatever it happens to be you're looking for, depending on how well I do it. And so here's some questions. How many stars or intelligences are there out in space? Do we still ask that question? Yeah, absolutely. How many universes are there? Are there is there sentient life out there? Are there superhumans out there? We ask all sorts of speculative questions. Do those have direct relevancy? Uh, do those have direct relevance to what we eat later? No, of course not. But are they interesting questions? Yes, and so there are some people who are supposed to ask these questions and some people who need to get down to work, like ruling, being kings. Here's another question. Can necessary and contingent produce a necessary being? That's such a philosophical question. I'm not even going to go into it too much. But it means if something is necessary, that means it has to exist no matter what. If something is contingent, it means it has to exist if something else exists. And so the argument generally takes the form that what has to exist in the universe is God. What, ha what can exist in the universe if there's God happens to be man. And so a question is, if we're made of, say, matter, which is contingent, and form or spirit, which is God material, which is necessary, are we necessary as compositions of that which is necessary and contingent? It's a very interesting question, because it's essentially... When you die, are you the same person after you die? Because if your soul is not your whole being, but your soul and your body together are who you are, and then your body disappears, are you the same after you die? And at least in the Aeneid, the answer is certainly no. And at least in the Purgatorio, the answer is, well, you got to get rid of all that body. You don't want to be the same as you were during life. And so that's a very interesting and I think potentially sad question because... That means that when you die, according to Dante, do you ever exist again in the same way that you did while you were alive? No. No, which means you should really take what seriously? Life. Your life. Because even when he gets into the argument for the resurrection, you are not the same as you were when you were alive, when you are reborn. And the big question I want to ask you, so I guess I'll just ask it now, is this, because I want you to think about this before seminar. If the people in heaven are perfectly content and satisfied, why would they want to be resurrected? This is a version of what we see in the Aeneid, book 6. Recall when we went to the underworld, down to Elysium, we talked to Anchises. He told us some weird things about souls there. It was very odd. He said, what we do in Elysium is we have to clear out our souls of all bodily imperfections, emotions, things like that, opinions that are wrong-headed. 
And if in the thousand years they do that, they get to stay in Elysium. I can't recall whether it's forever. I think it is forever. But if they don't, they have to be recast into the world, reincarnated. And that seems to be sort of a punishment. But in this instance, this sort of Christian idea, the resurrection, the reincarnation, the sort of notion behind Easter after Christmas is that it's a good thing and that people actually want it. And so that just makes me want to ask, and this will be a highly philosophical, the, the most speculative question I can possibly ask, and I want to talk about this in seminar tomorrow, so I apologize to the listeners who don't get to be there. Does that suggest that the best thing a human can imagine is the beginning of a new adventure? And I just want you to think about that. Because if the best thing that can possibly happen is, happen is not to be in a heaven place, but to be resurrected in a body, what do you use a body to do? Move around, right? But you only move around because you have a reason to move around, a purpose. And so, does that mean that the best thing we can imagine is to have, say, the ultimate purpose and to be moving towards that? And then I would ask you this question. Is that something somebody has to wait to die in order to do? Or is that something you can do while you're alive? Move towards what you consider the ultimate purpose. Is that not what my people, the illuminators, the sun, those in the sun, encourage you to do every day? Because what is it we tell you to do? Follow your own, follow your own star, just like Bernetto Latini. Very good. All right, uh, the last couple questions here, I'm just going to mention them so that they're recorded. Must the primus motus be assumed? That's an excellent question. The primus motus is the prima mobile, God. Do you have to assume that God exists in order to do any reasoning? Big time question. People still get into arguments about this. If you go listen to Richard Dawkins or any of the new atheists argue against theologians, theologians will say, your argument has an infinite regress. You have to have some starting point at some point. And then the atheist will then say, well, you have to assume your starting point, and therefore what you say is invalid because I don't have to agree with your starting point. I will only say one thing. We know from a mathematician named Kurt Gödel, from his incompleteness theorem, that any system has to have an arbitrary starting point. You must make at least one assumption before you make any arguments. You can't, and that assumption is not rationally grounded. So, is there a touch of irrationality in all human reasoning? Yes. Absolutely. And I can tell you this, I studied very, very hard my entire life to try and figure out how that was wrong. Can you guess what I figured out? That's actually right. That's actually right. You have to start somewhere, and that somewhere will be an arbitrary point, no matter where it is. All right. Good, 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 good. So what distinguishes Solomon ultimately, and this is what Aquinas is saying, is not that he had a perfect nature, but that he was a perfect king, that he was a good and prudent king. And so when Aquinas was speaking, he was speaking a little too liberally, a little too generally. And so he was suggesting that Solomon was a better king than most, that he was a perfect king, that he was one of the rare good ones, which I think is a powerful message to you because it suggests this. What's most important about you is not your specific role in society, but how well you play the roles that you play. It doesn't matter whether you're a student or a lawyer or a doctor. Those things seem to be determined by the heavens for Dante. What matters whether you're a good doctor, or a bad shoe salesman, or a malevolent carpenter, which would be a very malevolent sort of person, because then roofs would fall on people, and that would be terrible. All right, 
And then Dante gives us a quick bit of advice that says, do not judge these things too quickly. Often it is the bugbear of small minds to make a quick judgment and then to no longer think about what they are thinking about and then to leave themselves with an incorrect impression about that which is true, which he says is terrible because then you have a mind full of what's. The opposite of truths. Lies, falsities, right. And are those very helpful? No. No, no, no. All right. Very good. I promised that that would be short. It definitely was not. But I think we got just as far as we needed to.